Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia, and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Christopher Tan, whom I'm sure many food lovers will be familiar with. A journalist for over two decades, Christopher Tan has explored and commented on food, culture and heritage for many local and international publications. A regular food columnist for several years at The Straits Times, he has presented talks, videos and demos at Singapore's museums, the Culinary Institute of America in Napa Valley, Paris's La Musique Bondi, and the Sydney International Food Festival. He has authored and co-authored many cookbooks, most recently The Way of Gui, a tribute to local Gui culture which was named Book of the Year and Best Illustrated Non-Fiction Book at the Singapore Book Awards 2020. He believes that what we eat is but the smallest part of any food encounter. It is in the how, why, when, where and with whom we eat that most of its flavour really lies. So I was reading up about you and um, one thing that really surprised me was that you spent a few years in London um, when you were a teenager growing up. So can you tell me how moving to London influenced your relationship with food? So what happened was my immediate family, we moved there when I was about 11 or so. Um, And then I actually uh, was living there all the way until I had to come back to Singapore for NS. And then after NS, Mm -hmm. I went back to do uni. You know, so so many of my formative years uh, were spent there. I think, you know, and I'm sure a lot of Singaporeans who have lived abroad will appreciate this. When you're living away from home, you come to realize how much, uh, rather, you come to realize how important Singaporean food is to you, because it's not mm. easy to get. You have to make it yourself. There are key flavors that uh, uh, you sharply miss. You know, so. Um, mm. Moving overseas always makes you more aware of that, makes you more aware of what makes home home in the, in the gastronomical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I, I, I was really fascinated by this, this new sort of food milieu that I was living in. You know? and, and I should point mm-hmm. out, I, I was... Sorry, I moved there when I was 13. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, um, I hadn't really started cooking properly. Um, it was when I was in the UK that I suddenly had access to things like flour and eggs and milk and butter that were both better quality and slightly cheaper on average than what we could get in Singapore at the time. And so I started baking when I was about 13 or 14. Um, and I count myself very fortunate to be to catch the, the sort of the tail end of the era where, where milk was still delivered to your doorstep in bottles. You know, which I only read about in like Enid Blyton, and then to have it, it suddenly happen. You know, you wake up in the morning, you open the door, and there's a milk bottle there, and you could choose between gold top with extra cream, and then silver top with a bit of cream, and then red top, which mm. is normal. You know, all these, all these, all these things. You know, it, it really opened my eyes to to what was possible, and 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 what that that there's more than one way to thinking about food and to approaching food. Mm. So when you were thirteen, you moved over with your with your family mm-hmm. to London. Um, and so, what what were the dishes or memories that you missed from Singapore? Did your family cook, you know, the same dishes as they did in Singapore? As much as we could, given the ingredients that we had, you know, I mean, we had access to Chinatown, of course. Mm. Um, but you know, things like pandan leaves were like hen's teeth, right? Um, mm. Ordinary things uh, that you would, you know, all the fresh herbs like laksadis and all that, you just couldn't get there. I think at that point, in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, you could own. There were maybe two or three Singaporean restaurants in the UK. Um, you know, we, as far as is possible, we tried to cook the same things. I think what I most missed probably was like the breakfast stuff, like chai tao kuei and yu cha kuei and things mm. like that, because those, yeah. those are, you know, those are very very unique to Singapore. And also, um, good Malay food also was hard to come by. Malay and Indonesian yeah. food. So, I mean, you know, being from a Pranakan background, you know, we all love our spicy food. So, um, mm. all that was 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 uh, uh, particularly um, missed. You know, if you have grown up in Singapore, then it should be in your bones. Mm. Um, and and being in a new culture and in a new milieu with you know um, different foods and 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 different. Uh, 
just a whole different culture sur- surrounding the food that that shouldn't make you less Singaporean. It, it makes your own Singaporeanness stand out to you more. When you can't get hawker food and you have to make hawker food yourself, even basic things like chakwe tiao, okay, you understand how difficult it is and then you appreciate all the more how hard it is to make that food. Even if you have access to the ingredients, you know, it's all the little fine details that really make it good. If Once you have to do it yourself, then it, then you realize, oh, okay. Yeah, totally. That's why people. That's why people queue up for half yeah, the money. Yeah, now I'm food. like, just take my money, you know. <laughs> but but I want to to say that you know when people think about Singaporean food in 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 the sort of discourse in the media and when when people you know when it gets covered by by the media, everyone talks about hawker food, hawker food, hawker mm. food, hawker food. But especially in recent years, a lot of my work, um, I see it as my mission to to tell people that you know home cooking is even more important than hawker mm-hmm. food because every hawker dish, every restaurant dish was once a home dish. Mm. And I feel that so many of us, because we have no time or for whatever reasons, we don't cook at home as much as you know our, our, the, the, the previous few generations mm. did, that we are losing the tradition of Singaporean home cooking, which is entirely separate from, related to, but it's a different thing to hawker yeah, cooking. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you look, if you look at cookbooks from the 1950s, 60s onwards, the, the YWAC, YWCA mm. cookbook, Ellis Handy's cookbook, you know, my favorite recipes, it, th- there's a particular style, there's a, there's a voice there. You know, if you look at the female magazine compilation cookbooks from the 1970s, and, which, which compiled all the recipes that appeared in the magazines, there was a particular way and, and, and often a very cosmopolitan way of, of, of looking at local flavors and, and of the kinds of dishes that, that, that were uh, uh, in those books that that um, I think I think we have forgotten that. What do you mean by cosmopolitan way of looking at the dishes? As in, okay, so 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 to look at the the female cookbooks in in particular, and this and this was a series of cookbooks from the the late nineteen seventies way into the mid eighties that every year female magazine would come out mm. with, and these these recipes would have appeared previously in the magazine, and they in the you know in the late late seventies early eighties there were things like Vietnamese dishes. There were Sri Lankan dishes, mm. you know. There, there, there were there were uh, you know interesting Western European dishes, and there was a a sort of a casual acceptance of eating very diversely, mm. you know, over the course of a day or over the course of a single meal. All, all that, you know, a whole generation of Singaporeans grew up with that kind of food as home cooking, and that mm-hmm. that educates your palate. You know, mm-hmm. your pa- your preferences and your palate are educated from infancy upwards. Yeah. Um, and I feel that so much of, of, of media discourse these days is about restaurant food and hawker food. Yeah. And Instagram food. <laughs> and, Instagram food. And and in, in and sort of you know the everyday home cooking, and, and sort of special occasion home cooking. We don't really talk about that as much why do you think that's the case do you think it's because the act of home cooking is less common right now or do you think it has devolved into something different from- I, I think it, 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 it is less common just because you know in many families both parents have to work mm. so the food will either be bought or will be prepared by their parents or yeah. by their helper so i think few people have the mental space to sit down and think what am i going to cook today Mm. You know, or, or or what do I plan to cook this week? And then cooking becomes like a special thing that you only do once in a while. Yeah, you know. Um, and 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 I think if you grow up in a household where cooking is done every day, and you see your family make dishes that have been handed down in your family, and you know vary them according to whim, you you learn a lot about how food works, about how cooking works. Do you feel that that is a luxury in today's times? I don't know how other people see it. I think it's an absolute necessity in terms of if you want to grow up with a good appreciation of food, I think it's Mm -hmm. crucial. Yeah. I mean, definitely it's really important, but do you feel that it is something that everyone can do? Or, I mean, as people who are advocating for home cooking, do you think that we are asking too much of people? 
I, I don't know how we would quantify that too much. You know, all we can do is ask because mm. if we don't ask, then it's we're already lost. We have to, we have to ask. We have to encourage. We have to show people how to make space in their lives to cook food and especially to celebrate their own family's tradition, you know, which is why mm. I, I appreciate Seasonings Mag uh, so much because, you know, you, mm. that's what you all document, right? It's home traditions. Mm. Um, I, I, was, I was having a discussion with, with, with someone a while ago, um, and I think I probably have written this in, in some of my articles also, but, you know, what, what, what we think of today as... Um, sort of de facto national dishes like chicken rice or, or you know, or, or nonya mi, right? Things like that. Yeah. Those were the home dishes of our grandparents, great-grandparents' generation. If mm. you look at our, what our great-grandchildren are going to are gonna say were their touchstone dishes based on what mm. is being made for them now, what would it be? Would it be, be, be pasta? <laughs> Would it be would it be some dish by Jamie and Nigella? <laughs> but the thing is, what what do you think if it was neither of the two? I mean, what if it was like a a new form of pasta that was informed by, you know, a local dish? What do you think of that? I mean, every generation has to find their own way. Mm. Okay, every generation has to 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 work out how they feel about food. Mm. But if they are not, if they are not exposed to what their parents and their grandparents were familiar with, mm. then what? Where are they going to plant their feet? Mm. What are they rooted in? If if all you know is food that has been delivered to you by by a delivery service mm. or food that has been bought in, you know what? What does that tell you about your own heritage? I mean, just, just, to, just to be clear, I'm not saying that, that, that catered-in food or food cooked by anyone other th than your family members is bad. <laughs> yeah. that I feel that sometimes there, there is nothing to connect the younger generation with their, their forebears. Mm. Yeah. You know? So having taught and written about food and cooking for over a decade, I think you've been a food writer for over two decades and also a culinary teacher for 15 years. So what are some of the changes that you have noticed about Singaporean food culture in the consumption habits or the cooking habits or you know, just the way that we enjoy food in general? I think we are very attuned to trends. Singapore being, being a port city, you know, it's a place where trends have always crossed and mingled and, you know, um, miscegenated I, and this is probably not unique to Singapore but but I see that we are always on the lookout for novelty yeah. or maybe it's because that's what the media likes to give us mm. you know we, we, we are kind of restless uh, I mean I think that's a good trait I think it's good to be restless and, and to be in curious and inquisitive about food you know like, like every other country and, and, and culture in the world we are becoming more and more visually influenced by platforms like Instagram, mm. like TikTok. And I feel that sometimes the, the visual appearance of food matters a bit too much nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, everything has to be sexy looking or have some dribbling caramel down the side yeah. or, you know, uh, uh, Hello Kitty face on it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so do you find that that makes it hard for Singaporean food to compete with food from other cuisines and other uh, other cultures. Why does there have to be a competition? You know, when we talk about, you know, you want Singaporeans to remain tethered to their cultures. I feel that a lot of my friends of my age group, they cook a lot of, say, Japanese and Korean food just because it looks very aesthetically pleasing, like what you said. Um, so in that way... Wouldn't they prefer to cook those things over something that is, you know, maybe ugly delicious um, from Singapore? I think beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If we think something is ugly, it's because we've been told that it's ugly. So maybe it's what it, it's our perception that needs to change. I mean, a lot of people do feel that, say, you know, our hofan or our satay bihun, like they are very brown dishes. And I think that is quite an objective statement. And I feel that, you know, when you put that side by side with something 
um, say a Japanese bento set, you know, I which is more colorful. Um, you know, the Japanese actually take the time to cut out those little grooves in the mushrooms to the camera. I think the Japanese bento set would definitely look more appealing. And I, I feel that that is perhaps why young Singaporeans would want to make something from Japan over something from Singapore. At least that is my observation. Okay, I, I can say that, you know, it, the grass is always greener on the other side. You You always look for things which are unfamiliar because they're new to you. Okay, they're not something that is part of the background because you grew up with them. So that whole thing of novelty applies. For sure, there are certain cuisines and cultures that are especially attuned to aesthetics when it comes to food. Okay, I am very uncomfortable with the idea that some cuisines are innately visually more appealing than others because it really depends on how you define appealing. The fact that something may be brown, yes, that's objective. The fact that you're implying that brown is boring or brown is bad is a value judgment. If if you want to talk about carefully cut things, how about a pranakan krabu yeah. or a Malay krabu? Or you have nasi nasi krabu from northern Malaysia where you have, you know, your herb tinted rice and your stuffed yeah, fish definitely. and all that. How, uh, who, you know, I, I think that's beautiful. Mm. Um, and if, if people don't realize that's beautiful, maybe they just haven't been exposed to it. Look, look at Yishang. That was expressly created or expressly elaborated on by chefs to have a multitude of colors and very, you know, precision cut vegetables and symbolic values. And that's amazing. Mm, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I feel that Singaporean food is beautiful because I have all these memories attached to it. But what, what I'm suggesting here is that maybe visual preferences have changed for young Singaporeans. So for example, the Yusheng example that you brought up, true, it was conceived to be a colourful dish, but I feel that to a young Singaporean, they might find the artificial colouring gaudy, maybe. Okay, I just want to point out that the original Yishang did not have a lot of artificial colouring. Huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, it was natural thing. Carrot, green, radish. In fact, raw sweet potato, orange sweet potato was in the original Yishang. Mm. Okay, you have green lime leaf. And, and this whole thing about artificial colouring. Now, I, I don't use artificial colouring because I, I feel there's no need for it. If you look at kueis, in the old days, you had to extract your own colours from natural ingredients to colour your kueis. So, kueis... Yeah. In my grandparents, great-grandparents' generation, they were more more pastel-coloured. The colours were, were, were gentler. Mm. Okay? Artificial food colouring has only been in the world at large for, you know, 100, 120 years. Um, and I suppose that if something goes on the market, then people will leap on it. But mm. if, if, if you know, there are young people who think, oh, that, I, I, I want more colour... You know, I, I let, let's just chuck in some some coloring. I, I would hope that they would take a step back and look at the history of the kueh and look at the point of the original natural coloring in the kueh and ask what 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 is that for? Is the color symbolic? Is it as much for mm. aroma as for color, like in pandan? You know, they, mm. they, if if they then come up with their own reason for adding artificial coloring and they're happy with that then that's fine. That's that's their perspective. But, uh, you know, I, I see people who think that rainbow steam kue lapis with the seven colours of the actual rainbow are traditional. And I'm like, no, no, they're not. It was two. Okay, it was two at the most last time. I, I feel that in, in our, sometimes in, in our, our zeal for novelty, we forget traditions. Mm. And I'm not saying that we must make everything the traditional way. I'm not saying that at all. Mm. I think your heritage and, and, and your, your family legacies, it, it serves as a compass. Mm. Okay, It's not a rigid box that you have to fit in. It's a compass 
and it's a place where you can plant your feet so that you can then look at the world. Mm, completely agree. You know, now that we are speaking about Gui, I would love to ask you about your book. This was way before COVID when you were, were working on this book. And um, I guess yeah. with COVID, we have seen that there have been so many home-based businesses selling Gui's. But I guess you, were, you already had the idea before it became fashionable. So can you tell me why you decided to write a whole book about it? The the idea kind of started germinating about seven years ago, roughly. Mm-hmm. And and at this point, I had already been a food writer. I already, you know, I had already started writing cookbooks. As a, as a Pranakan, you just grow up, or rather growing up in a Pranakan family, you you are just surrounded by kue at festival times. Yeah. And generally, for, for Singaporeans of my generation, you know, as kids, we enjoyed a lot of kue at Chinese New Year, at Hari Raya, at... at uh, uh, you know, all Christmas at all the festivals. And about this time, around, you know, seven, seven or eight years ago, I noticed that we were seeing fewer and fewer kinds of kue being sold. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, every year I make it a point to visit the, uh, I would make it a point to visit the, the Chinese New Year Pasamalams and the Hari Raya Pasas you know, and, and, and the Deepavali Pasas. Um, and year upon year, you see less and less traditional food and more and more non-Singaporean food. You know, mm. and, and I was concerned about that. I was like, why, why are so many of the, the delicious things that I remembered from my youth disappearing? And mm. um, why, do, why do people, you know, not, not make them anymore? And then and it also extended to you know, I see when, when, when we have potlucks or parties and, and, and you know, it, it, when I was young, I remember people making their own kue, their own aga-aga, their own cakes to bring to potlucks, right? Mm-hmm. And then it just became more and more that people were buying stuff rather than making stuff. Mm-hmm. And also, my students were asking me for kue classes, mm-hmm. right? And I was, I've, I've, you know, since since I was young, I loved reading old cookbooks. So I, I've always um, tried to, to to find and collect old cookbooks. You know, and I see a lot of these recipes in these old books not being made. Yeah. And and I was looking for books to buy to to tell me properly how to make things, and I couldn't find any really comprehensive quay books with decipherable recipes. You know, I have some old books with recipes for wonderful quays, but the recipes were badly edited or, or not not uh, understandably expressed, so hard to follow. You know, the the, the five cents blatan kind of thing, right? So, so I was like, you know, maybe maybe it's time for me to write the book. What year was that when you had that thought? So this was this was about six or seven years ago. Mm. Okay, so the, so the way of Quake came out in twenty at the end of twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. and by that time I had already spent two years just working on the book alone, and then a total of about four years already, uh, uh, re- starting to research and think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, I am at this point in my life. I've written enough cookbooks to know know the ropes. Mm-hmm. I, I've taught enough classes to know what people want to learn and what's the best way to to to, to get get. The, the point and the concept of the recipe across, maybe I should write the book. If I can't find the book to read, maybe I need to write one. Mm-hmm. And I felt that it really, it was like a like a divine calling, you know, because the opportunity came up. I applied to the National Heritage Board for a grant because I knew this, this was going to be a, a long project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, amazingly, I, I was awarded the grant. And so I had some funds to... To, to sort of uh, 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 underwrite all the research and, and the finding of proper quay equipment and the interviewing of, of other quay makers, which was always crucial to me. I, that from, from, from the word go, I knew I had to include stories from expert as well as new quay makers in the book just to, to show the reader the different ways people in which think, the different ways in which people think about quay and incorporate quay into their lives. Mm. You know, I wanted to, to, to sort of survey the culture as such. Looking back at it, I, 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 I think about it, I was like, man, that was a lot of work. 
<laughs> I, I, you know, I find it hard to believe how much work I put yeah, into it. Yeah, I, I can only imagine because it's a very trial and error kind of process to get the kuih just right, right? Uh, again, no, I, I disagree <laughs> with that. It's not trial and error. It is uh, educated experimentation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's not. Like, it's not like stabbing in the dark because there is all the, so because every kuih maker I spoke to, every old book I have shed some mm. light. So I was not stabbing in the dark. And, and while we're on the subject, mm. okay, let me just, I just want to clarify something since I have this, this opportunity. Yeah, to, aga, aga, is it? Yes, aga, aga, <laughs> yes, you, you read my mind. Okay, a lot of people misunderstand aga, aga to, to mean trial and error or anyhow cook or, or, or you know, w- worst of all, slapdash cooking. Mm. No, let me just say a very firm no. And I put this in the, I, I made sure to put this in the book. Aga aga means, to me, precision without measuring equipment. Mm. Okay, aga aga means knowing your ingredients and your cooking processes so well that you are able to adapt on the fly to variations in your ingredients and in your your ambient cooking conditions. Mm. Okay, so aga aga actually is what every seasoned cook has at their fingertips yeah. and should strive for. It's to know to know your, your metier so well, okay, that say if today's lime leaves are less fragrant than yesterday's, you know what to do mm. to uh, accommodate that. Yeah, totally agree. And I feel that this is especially so in kueh making because you use a lot yeah. of vegetables, right, and a lot of produce, and these things can vary so much. Yeah. And the perennial difficulty with handing down kueh recipes from generation to generation is how to capture all these grace notes. Mm. You know what? What does what should the dough feel like? What should the the batter smell like? What should what what should it look like at this point, and then followed by this point? And how should the kueh change over the different stages of its making? Mm. You know. So I, I tried as, as hard as possible to put in all these signposts and describe all these things in the book. And that was probably uh, the most challenging part of it. Mm. You know, and some things you can only discover by doing. Yeah, agree. Some, some recipes you can only really, uh, they will only inhabit you if you make them often enough. Mm. You know, I can say that, that at the end of two years of just making kueh recipes over and over again and cooking them, to, to, to photograph and 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 mm. just and hearing stories about them, I was I ended up a much better clay maker than I was before mm. I started the project, and that mm. that's the whole point of of you know uh, 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 immersing yourself in in a subject. Yeah, it's almost like sourdough making in that like you can pass someone a recipe for sourdough, but the product is so different because it's all about the touch, right? And yeah. being so attuned to the the nuances in how the dough feels. Mm. And, and your culture is different from anyone else's culture mm. once it gets established. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, all traditional cooking rests on aga-aga as a foundation. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, so for you, I know that you're very adept at um, Western kinds of pastry and dessert as well. In your experience, what are some of the parallels and you know differences that you have discerned through this book writing process? You know, many of our kueh's have some kind of colonial connection, like pineapple tarts, mm-hmm. right? Like kueh lapis, uh, the ones which are more sort of wheat-based, like, you know, pine- pineapple tart dough is, is basically a, a Dutch butter pastry, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, so, so there's an obvious connection there. I, I would say that, uh, in general, Asian, Asian cuisines, we value a slightly different set of textures mm-hmm. and flavor dimensions than, than Western cuisine yeah. does. Like the glutinous QQ kind of texture, right? You, yeah, like we like sticky things. Yeah. We like bouncy things. We like, you know, different varies very uh, different degrees of of jelliness mm. right you, you think you think of the jelly texture of chendol versus aga aga versus uh, a, a kueh kosui mm. which is like a starch gel a, a lot of kueh's are actually starch mm. gels and and so i think we are quite attuned to that mm. um, we like a lot of textural variation within a kueh think about an onde onde okay the whole point of an onde onde is is that molten palm sugar core 
and then you have the sticky dough around it. But you also have that zone just between the liquid sugar and, and, and the glutinous rice dough that is sort of where the dough is extra soft that because it's been mm. next to the sugar, right? Mm. And then you have the slightly tacky outside and then you have the coconut that sticks to the tacky outside. That's, that's a lot of different textures within mm. one mouthful. You know, and whereas, say, you know, a, a French dessert might achieve that by, by layering different components of, you know, cream and curd and pastry mm. and all that, um, I feel that a lot of, of kueis are sort of more yeah. self-contained. I feel that a lot of kueh seems to be like steamed or fried, um, but Western desserts tend to be, um, most of them tend to be baked. So why do you think there is this distinction? It's not that there are no ovens in Asia, okay? Uh, it's just that ovens need fuel. Mm. And um, it is a lot more fuel efficient to steam something or boil something or pan fry something than to bake it. And a lot of the kueh we do have that are baked come to us from colonial mm. traditions like kueh, kueh bolu. Yeah. Okay, all the kueh that in the old days were baked by being sandwiched in a vessel between charcoal. charcoal underneath and charcoal on top. Okay, that 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 sort of in uh, in an outside kitchen setting that mimics the effect of a Western mm-hmm. oven. So a lot of those ways have have Western roots, and that that's just that's just a, a um, uh, an accident of 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 history, you know. And, and and I think also a lot of Western pastry, and and again we I think we are over generalizing mm-hmm. a bit because European pastry versus American versus, you know, uh, Iberian. It, it's all quite, quite, quite mm. different. Um, but a lot of the Western Hemisphere, a lot of their desserts and snacks are wheat-based, mm. whereas in Asia we have a lot of things which are rice-based or tuber-based. Yeah. You know, and, we, and, and like you said, we incorporate vegetables into even our desserts. So that changes the whole suite of textures that we get and it, it necessitates a, a lot of different, cooking methods as well. Yeah, and that's something that fascinates me. Why do you think the use of vegetables and desserts is so prevalent in Asia? You you use what you have. Things like sweet potatoes and, and taro, they have a natural sweetness and they have beautiful colour. Mm. So why wouldn't you use them in desserts? Mm. You know, that there, there is no rule in nature that you must use this for, for savoury, you must use that for dessert. Um, I, 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 I don't think we have really strict boundaries like that in a lot of Southeast Asian food. But what about in the West? Why do you think this is not commonly practiced? I mean, is it because they um, draw the lines between savory and sweet more clearly? Um, it's just because of the history. I mean, I, I don't want to write some anthropological textbook for you here. <laughs> it's, it's just how their food evolved and how our food evolved. It's different tracks, different mm. paths. It's just it's just how history works, that's all. And vive la difference. <laughs> yes. So, you know, after having written this book and looking at the resurgence of Hui in Singapore, are you optimistic that Singaporeans, particularly the younger Singaporeans, um, do you think, are you hopeful that they would be not just consumers, but actually, you know, go into their kitchens and start making Hui? I, I very much hope so. Mm. Um, I think what everyone needs to realize is that we all have a say in how the food culture of our country evolves. Mm. We all have a stake and we all have a say and we are all culture makers. Okay? Your, Your national food culture is not something that you should have to order in. It should be something that you stand in and you and you and you cook and you practice and you live out. You know, your heritage is your anchor. It is your compass. It is your passport from which you go and explore other places, but you hold your passport. I I very much hope that the younger generations will will take up home cooking as an activity, uh, as a hobby, Um, not as a luxury, but as a necessity. Um, But it it will only happen if Mm -hmm. their parents and their grandparents make it a point to pass on these activities to them you know if 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 you grow up in a home where where cooking is valued um as an activity that has intrinsic value um 
and especially as a bonding activity. And, and that's a very key reason also mm. why I wrote The Way of Kuei, because, because the act of gathering at festival times to make Kuei as a family and an and extended family, that is one of the most important attributes of, of Kuei making. You know, you bond while making the Kuei. Everyone takes on a different role. Everyone chips in. And as, as, you, and as you chip in, you share stories, you learn from each other, you enjoy each other's company. That, that's a very, very crucial part of, of, of Kuei making that I think is, is slowly being lost if, if we, you know, increasingly buy Kuei rather than make Kuei. Yeah, actually, I feel that with the younger generation that, that is growing up with TikTok and instant gratification, it's becoming harder and harder to, um, you know, have that kind of bonding. Like for, for me, for example, I was learning how to make um, Uncle Kue from my uh, my grandmother-in-law. And it was just like hour upon hour of um, shaping the thing and knocking it out. Um, and even though... I had worked in kitchens and, you know, I'm used to that kind of manual labor. But to me, it was, you know, quite torturous. I mean, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think we can encourage these traditions, especially for the younger generation when they are so used to five minute kind of recipes or like, you know, five ingredient kind of things? I, th- I think it's, it's a great fallacy that a lot of social media promises to us that if you will just follow these steps, these five essential steps you need or whatever, right, then you will get something right. A lot of cooking is not like that. A lot of cooking, and not just kueh, any kind of cooking, any kind of cuisine and culture, you have to make something a hundred times to understand it. You know, I, I will never forget an, an, an Indian chef from Goa telling me once about how, you know, about her apprenticeship as a young chef and, and learning to mm. understand how spices work. She said, it took me years to just understand cumin alone, you know? And so I, I am perplexed by, 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 by people who, who do blogs mm. or videos or whatever who will make something five times and then declare that they've nailed it. You know, in, in, if, if, if you're really talking about traditional food, Mm. You know, even if, even if it's a simple dish, and maybe even more so if it's a simple dish, right? Because you have fewer ingredients to, 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 to hide behind, so mm. to speak. You, you need to make something over and over again to really get it into your bones and your fingertips and, 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 to, and to truly master it. And I think with a lot mm. of social media now, we are losing that sense of the, the, the kind of mastery that is needed, you know? But I think also we need to reframe how we think about traditional foods. Like I have a lot of people, mm. I have people asking me in interviews, but isn't mm. kuei so laborious? Isn't kuei so tedious? And you yourself just use the word torturous, right? I, I want mm. to suggest that, can we, can we step away from negative words like that? And I always tell people, and I always say this, I have to say this during classes, that I, I, I like to use the word effortful, okay? Because the amount of effort you put into cooking something you will be rewarded when it comes out fantastic. Mm. And if you describe something as tedious, tedium yeah. has no reward. If you describe something as effortful, that has a reward. So I think we need to, to completely reframe and look at it as why are we putting so much time and hard work into it? Because mm. it is worth it. If you have only grown up with kuei that has been purchased from a commercial uh, as a business, right? Commercial businesses operate under very different constraints than the home cook. They have to hire staff. Mm. They have to, you know, they have to generate enough revenue for, for, for rental, for ingredients, to maintain equipment, for overheads. And it means that, that, that they have a lot of things to worry mm. about over and above how good the kuei is. Whereas if, you, if you're a home cook, you have the time to go and source your ingredients you have the time to, to you know, make sure that each angkukwe has a wonderful, precise shape and that the filling is seasoned just right. You know, and most importantly, of course, you are making the kue with love for your family as opposed to for customers, right? I mean, you may, you may love your customers, but they are not your family, right? So homemade kue can be of such you know, it, it can be so different and so much better than commercial kuei. And I think if, you, if you've never tasted homemade kuei, maybe you don't know that that's true. And so 
we need to that that's part of the reframing we need we need to tell everyone that if you can make something at home often mm. it will be a hundred a thousand times better than what you can buy mm. i completely agree with you i remember the first time i made pineapple tarts from the way of kue i was so blown away i think i i was messaging you and telling you that oh my god it's so nuanced because yeah. It's so far from the commercial pineapple jam that has just pineapples and sugar and glucose. That's it. And uh, also, I mean, the uncle kue that my grandmother-in-law made, it was, you know, the skin was so thin. It was so soft. Mm. I never liked uncle kue until I tasted her version. But I guess what I meant when I said torturous was um, the repetition. You know, like, for yeah. example, um, if you make something like a croissant or um, sourdough, I'm, I mean, it might take a lot of effort as well, but, you know, it's not one hour of doing the same thing over and over again. And I think that's what younger Singaporeans like myself struggle with. I, I'm, well, with a, with a croissant or with any kind mm. of laminated pastry, it's rolling and folding and chilling and rolling and folding and chilling and rolling and folding and chilling. So I find that exactly as repetitive. No, we only right? do that like what four, five times, and I think you do it for less than one hour, right? Um, I mean, like each rolling session takes probably like five minutes or something. You still have, yeah, but you still have to judge the texture of the dough and the temperature of the butter mm. and all that. I, I, I don't see that as any, any less repetitive or any less complicated than kueh. Frankly, if mm. if if you want to make a really good croissant, and you know, you, you mm. speak to a baker, and they will tell you that things like croissants and baguettes, you can make them all your life, and maybe you will achieve perfection a handful of times in that you know over a lifetime. So, um, I I, I you know it, it's it's not a question of 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 this being more torturous and that being less torturous. Mm. Uh, it, it repetition is 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 part of every kind of learning process how, how do you understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4 mm. by, by repeatedly you know going over the sums how, how do you learn anything in school it's by repetition that's why I feel that you know the whole mindset is very different for the younger generation like I, I remember I had, I had this friend who used to work at um, Din Tai Fung and he took 10 years to learn how to make a Xiaolong Pao mm. so like for, for the first year all he learned was rolling out the, the dough and then second year was how to make the, the filling and then third year was how to pleat it properly and I was like oh my gosh like how many young Singaporeans would actually take say 10 years to master one single thing yeah so I think it's really a shift in in terms of mindset and grit maybe and I think also we are you know we have so much media available to us we are constantly being pulled in different direct directions mm. and so it is very hard to focus or to spend a long time focusing on any one thing in this social media age you know, so so in, in that sense, the deck is slightly stacked against us because there's always things, you know, other things pulling for your attention, mm. right? Um, but if we all slow down mm. and take a take the the time to really think about why we are doing things and what benefits repetition has. Mm then I think we will understand it ultimately. You know, if, mm. if, if you want to be a good skateboarder, what do you do? You skateboard a lot mm. and you fall down and you make mistakes and you get back up again and you, mm. and you skateboard more. The same thing for making kueh, same thing for making croissants. You, you, you can't, you, you can't, master something you can't make something perfectly by only spending a week on it you have to do it for a long time but once you do it that knowledge and that 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 you know stays with you mm. and 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 you are immeasurably enriched by that new knowledge you have within mm. you i think it takes a certain level of obsession um to fuel that kind of drive I, th I think we all are capable of it it's just how we choose to where we choose to direct our yeah our obsessive mindsets That's right? right yeah because yeah. i mean i'm just trying to discern the difference between why people would have that kind of obsession to perfecting like the most you know perfect honeycomb within a croissant mm -hmm. uh, or like the the feet of a macaron for example but why they would perceive 
um, kue making differently. And again, it comes down to to what is new and novel, mm. and what is what what is what is entrancingly foreign. Yeah, will 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 have more appeal than something you might see every day. True, you know, um, mm. but also maybe someone has never sat down and explained to them what a good uncle kue should be like. Mm. You know, they they, they they may see macarons and croissants a hundred times a day on social media, and 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 have people you know have Western chefs tell them how good this is and 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 you know why it's good. But has anyone actually sat down and, and said you know? This is a really good Anku Kue. This is a homemade Anku Kue. Do you understand? Can you see? Taste this. Pay attention mm-hmm. to this. You know. So we. So, um, and that and that again links into the whole home cooking becoming a, a rarity. Yeah. If you don't see someone making these dishes at home, you may not understand how good they are and what it takes to 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 to, to get them that way. It's how you look at at, at uh, your own mm-hmm. heritage. Yes, the grass looks greener on the other side, but there's plenty of green on this side too. Pam, let, let me ask you a question. What, what, what keeps you going? Why did you start to do SGP noodles in the first place? And what, what draws you back? Mm. Uh, over and above the fact that you're actually not in Singapore, okay, what draws you back to heritage food as a young person? So I guess from young, I've always been a really food-obsessed person. Um, and... You know, in my teens, I was so obsessed with food from the West. Um, my mom would always complain that I was always buying these expensive ingredients from the supermarket instead of local mm-hmm. vegetables. At that point, local cuisine was so boring to me because it's so pedestrian, right? To me, my my view of Singaporean food was so narrow. It was, you know, chicken rice, nasi lemak, and then like some stir fry or like steamed fish. Um and then when I moved abroad, of course, you know, I experienced the same thing that you, you, you talked about, which was you hanker or like you crave those familiar flavors and textures. And, you know, when you can't get it, you definitely want to try making it at home. Mm. And what I realized was that there's so much craft and, yeah. you know, Singaporean food is so artisanal. And why is it not, not well documented? You know, I'm a huge cookbook junkie and I was like, you know, why is it that compared to food literature in the West, why is it that um, there is so little documentation for Southeast Asian cuisine particularly that it, that has not been filtered uh, through a white lens or written for a white audience? And so I think that's when I started to document my journey and I was just thinking you know I'll just create like an Instagram page because it's very like low low barrier right you just share about whatever you're cooking and then after that my friend was like you know I realized that food media tends to be very um dominated by the Chinese perspective you Mm. know it's always about Chinese food Chinese cuisine she was like you know why don't you start um, finding out about other cuisines like Eurasian cuisine or Indian food. And that was something really new because I don't think, even even though I had grown up in Singapore, I don't think I, I really tried um, different dishes outside of my own ethnicity. Like I didn't know what like a rasam was or I didn't know what um, a good um, say tose was supposed to be like. And... Um, mm. I kind of felt locked out of those right. cuisines because, you know, these kind of food, like you said, you know, home cooking, it's so different from what we know to be Singaporean food, right? It's, um, you know, it's what happens behind closed doors. And um, I really wanted to, to learn more. So I think it became like a learning journey for me to to explore. And then the more I started exploring, the more I realized that, you know, I'm so ignorant and like, I don't know so much. And so I think that that is what really keeps me going and what keeps me, you know, anchored, you know, to use your word to Singapore, even though I'm away from, from home. It, it strikes me that actually that, that is a consequence of uh, what happened when people shifted from living in kampongs to living in mm. HDB flats. because. All the seniors that I know who grew up in kampongs, and especially kampongs where you had families from different communities living side by side, Malay, Chinese, Indian, right? At festival times, you all share each other's food. You all give yeah. each other food. 
mm. and you and you grow up smelling the cooking of your neighbors and you know maybe going to peek into the kitchen and, and finding out what they're making so there is that natural level of familiarity with food that is not from your own heritage that, that, that I think was lost when we all moved into to estates right yeah you know I was chatting with um uh Devagi Samagam and like Damien De Silva mm. and they all told me the same thing you know this cult- these kind of rich cultural exchanges yeah. you know you trade recipes and then d- during different festivals you go to different people's houses yeah. But, you know, I, I don't ever remember going to a friend's house for like Hari Raya Pasa or, or Dipavali or, you know, uh, to a Eurasian person's house for Christmas. So I was like, wow, that's such a beautiful image of Singapore that I never got to experience myself. And uh, I think that was really what sparked Seasonings yeah. magazine. And I think that that's just, it's what kind of a bubble you grew up in, you know. It's, it's, yeah. And that's something that I think parents have to be intentional about. And and yeah. a lot of people like like Aziza Ali, whom I interviewed for the, for the Way of Grace, she said it has to start from young. Parents have to 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 bring their kids into the kitchen and explain to them what are these herbs for, why do we put this in this nasi dish for Hari Raya, you know, why, and and to to tell them also about, you know, why why does our neighbor make that for New Year, you mm. know, and just just to be be to to really be intentional about educating their kids about the world out there you know and, and everyone's very pressured now you know the, the, the sort of the working environment and the school systems in singapore are such that everyone has to just hunker down and keep their mm. head down and make sure they, they get all their kpis in a row right so we maybe have less time mm. now to 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 or we, we think we have less time to, to to spend on that kind of national education stuff yeah. When you were growing up, did you feel like your parents were really intentional about educating you about such things? It was just a fact of life. Like, like, like I remember when we, we used to live in a point block and my, and my neighbor across the landing was an Indian family, right? And then, we, mm-hmm. and you know, the kids, we all used to play together and Deepavali would come and they would give us some food and New Year would come and we would give them some food. Mm. And it was just, no one ever made a thing out of it. It wasn't a remarkable thing. It was just how life was conducted. I think we need to recover some of that. I don't know how we can. Uh, paradoxically, we are we, we are living in a very connected, a hyper-connected age. Mm. You know, it, it's easier to, to, to get in touch with someone and it's easier to record data than it has ever, ever been in human history. And yet we still isolate ourselves in our bubbles. Um, I think I think from my perspective, I feel that people are just afraid to offend. Like they, they, they have forgotten how to interact with people from other ethnicities. And so, you know, they just feel like if I were to say the wrong thing, it might offend the person. And so they would just rather not have those awkward, uncomfortable interactions. Asking someone to tell you more about their lives, how is that ever mm-hmm. offensive? If you if you are sincerely curious about someone else's culture, and if you are open and you want to know more about it, you know, you say please excuse me. You know, I, I may be ignorant, but I I will continue to mm. be ignorant unless you tell me more. So tell me more, feed me yeah. more, let me try more things. I may not like them, but I will. I I, I want to know more. You you eat one way, mm. I eat one way. We, we may eat differently, but I celebrate you as much as I celebrate my own culture. And, and, and I see that your culture has as much value as my culture. And I want to, and I want to learn more about, about yours. And I would hope that you would want to learn more about mine. I guess for, for Singapore, what, what would you hope to see you know, in the upcoming year? I just want to see people cooking more. You know, I, just, mm. I want to see people digging into the joy of cooking at home and mm. and and to in the joy of acquiring cooking skills you know th- th- there's always something more to learn there's always something more to enjoy <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's the great thing about food you can be a like lifelong student of food there's always so much to learn how about you pam what do you what do you hope for what do you want to see for yourself and for singaporean food I think for myself, it's to keep doing what I'm doing because I feel that, you know, it's 
it can feel quite lonely sometimes, especially, you know, being a person in my generation who likes this kind of food, to like sharing about these processes, which I feel is, you know, might not be very um, orthodox for a young person to like. And so, you know, for myself, I hope to continue um, documenting the, the journey and sharing about these things, my learnings with other people. And I guess for Singapore, I think my hope is that, you know, just like you, I feel that more people should embrace home cooking. And recently I was chatting with a friend uh, who recently got married and moved out. And so I, he was doing his house tour. And so I asked him, can you show me your fridge, you know, out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious about what other young people are eating or have in their fridges. And to my surprise, the, the fridge had no produce. There was like no vegetables, mm. no fruits, no meat. It was just processed food. It, it, it just looked like a, like an American fridge, you know. Uh, you know, like those kind of stereotypical American fridges. Um, and I was mm. taken aback. I didn't realize that Singaporeans who had been, you know, who had grown up in a setting of enjoying home-cooked food every dinner could could have a fridge like that when, when they're older. It made me feel like we are losing so much um, between generations. Mm. And I think that really adds fuel to my fire in a way. Yeah, we have to reframe. We have to reprioritize. Mm. We have to not be scared of making mistakes when it comes to home yeah. cooking. I'm just thinking, how can we encourage people to embrace it because I know that there's so many things going against it, you know, especially cooking local. There is hawker food that is so convenient, affordable. A lot of ingredients are fading away and vanishing from our wet markets. So, you know, they might not be available at the supermarkets. As a young person, it just makes me worried and it just makes me think, what what can I do, you know? How can I do things differently to to make things a little bit more relevant for my generation? I think, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, mm. right? If someone out there listening, if you want to get into home cooking more, you don't need to start with the elaborate festival dishes. Start with something simple. Mm. You know, every cuisine has everyday dishes which take very little time to whip up and do not have 45 ingredients. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding what those dishes are. Every trial, every meal, every dish is a brick in the wall. Yeah. You know, one brick at a time, and then eventually you will have a magnificent house. So, so you, you seize every opportunity to, to add to your knowledge and to, to, to you know, uh, improve your skill. I think maybe, you know, both of us, we should stop thinking of ourselves as content creators and start thinking of us as encouragement creators. Mm. Right? It's, you, you tell people everything you know mm. because you can't predict what will stick. So you just put it out there. You know, if, if, and, and if your enthusiasm and if your love for something comes across mm. clearly, then other people will seize on that. Nothing is quite mm. attractive it's nothing is as attractive as seeing someone get excited mm. about something. And I guess that's the other question that I would love to ask you as a cookbook writer and as a culinary teacher. Mm. You know, I always feel very sheepish when, <laughs> when you know, there's a step in the recipe that's more tedious or, you know, it's something like deep frying that everyone is so frightened about. Um, and I, I realize that a lot of cookbooks um, out in the market right now, because they are aware of what the de the market demands are, they you know they shift the kind of recipes that they share accordingly. So, have you ever felt that kind of pressure? Um. Hmm. A again, I think it's a matter of reframing. Okay. So so so. Let's let's stay away from words like tedious and, and, and let's start motivating ourselves that if I really want to learn to do something, then then I will do whatever it takes mm -hmm. to learn something. Mm. You know? And if you can find someone to hold your hand and to explain why something may not be as intimidating as it first appears, mm -hmm. then that's half the battle won. You know, and as a teacher, 
I try to do that. I try to demystify and, and to maybe to de- defang mm. things. Okay, you mentioned deep frying. I'll tell you. You know, the book that made me feel more secure about attempting deep mm. frying was a Chinese cookbook written by a small Jewish lady called Barbara Trock. Oh yeah, I've read her book. So right, who is an American cooking teacher yeah. uh, who used to live in Taiwan and spoke Chinese, mm. and she wrote one of the best basic Chinese cooking technique books, mastering the art mm. of Chinese uh, cooking. Like 20 pages just on deep frying, you know, mm-hmm. to the extent of what you will need to have next to your stove in order for the process. Like, I think she suggested having an aloe vera plant so in case you burn yourself. And, and what you will need, you'll need chopsticks, you'll need... And, and so I think explaining something in a lot of detail and reassuring people that, look, it's you can do it. You just pay attention to these key points. You can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, Um I think that's important. And I and you shouldn't ever feel sheepish about attempting something or to explaining something once you have it down pat. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you know? because you know like I use I I do video tutorials sometimes and my friend yeah. was lis- listening to, you know, me narrating and he was like, "Do you realize that you 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 say just a lot?" Maybe it's because you want to you want people to feel like, oh, you know, it's just like this, you know, it's not that hard, you know. And then I realized that, you know, maybe subconsciously I do feel paisela, you know, that it's so difficult, you know, or it's so But see, uh, why why do you have it in your mind from the get go that oh this is very difficult? Don't 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 hobble yourself by assuming that someone else will think it's difficult. Yeah. The, the most important part is that it's interesting mm. and it will give you something tasty at the end of it. Yeah. That's the most salient point, not the difficulty. Mm. It's Again, it's about the effortfulness, right? <laughs> it, it's, 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 the value, it's the value in something. But, you know, as culinary teachers, we also have the responsibility to make sure that we really know something before we, wanna, we, before we teach it. Mm. Yeah. Okay, you can't make something six times and think I know this well enough to teach someone because because you, you know you, if you if there are st- still things that you need to learn about it, then you, you can't teach it yet. You need to know how much you don't know, and then you need to know how much you know, mm. and then you can pass that on. Yeah, you know? I think for me, what I'm doing with Singapore noodles, it's basically. I am documenting my journey and just putting my process up for anyone who might want to replicate it for themselves and just yeah. presenting the recipe in as clear a manner as I can. Yeah. So I mean, it might not be like, you know, say for example, a Hokkien Mee recipe that I put up might not be better than one that a hawker in Singapore is doing. Mm. But I, I think for me, it's more about putting the work out there and telling people that, hey, you know, you can make a version of this at home. You know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, the ultimate, most perfect version. If not, I, I don't think I'll, I'll post anything, to be honest. <laughs> no, no, and that's good because people want, you know, a, a, like, like, a, like, a, like a BFF in the kitchen, right? They want a, yeah. a, a companion yeah. who's, doing the same, yeah. who's doing the same thing uh, as them Mm. To hold that, to hold their hand and walk alongside with them on the journey, mm. right? Yeah. Um, it's just you have to be careful if you're if you're making something that you know is not necessarily authentic. You you have to say so though. Mm. Um, I, as as a reader, something I get annoyed when people claim something is authentic or traditional when it's clearly not. Oh, because they, because they haven't done enough research. Mm. For you me, know? I always avoid those two words because they are super contentious. I feel that, you know, the moment you put those two words up somewhere, you're like setting yourself up for failure. Like, uh, At which point do we start considering something to be traditional or authentic? Because it's always a moving target, right? No, like, like I always say, you cannot use those words in a context-free setting. Mm. Something cannot just be authentic, full stop. Yeah. That's using the word wrongly. Something must be authentic to something, mm. whether it's authentic to an era, authentic to a family, yeah. authentic to a community, authentic to one particular chef, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. authentic, 
authentic to one festival. Mm. So authenticity must always be connected to something. And likewise, tradition must always be connected to something. Mm. Yeah, I, I will tell you a funny story. So I was um, going to uh, try making ayam masak merah at home and I had never made it before. And so I, I started doing a poll on Instagram stories. Um, so asking people, yep. oh, do you put curry leaves? Yes, no. Do you put um, coconut milk? Yes, no. And then... Like when I got the responses, it's very funny because it was all like 50-50. And then someone told me, oh, if my grandma um, realizes that I put curry leaf in my ayam masak merah, she'll be like rolling around in her grave. You know what I mean? And I'm like, you know, but why do you have to feel that way? Because, you know, it's like a 50-50 split. Everyone does things differently, you know? So what exactly is authentic? And, and, and you know what this comes down to, which again, is, 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 it is made worse by social media, is the idea that there is one yeah. version of everything. Food does not work like that, mm. okay? There is no, it's not like, like the platonic solids where there's only one dodecahedron or only one tetrahedron mm. and only one cube. Okay, food is not like that. What constitutes a dish is how the entire community makes the dish. Mm. Everyone's version of it, every family's version, every cook's version, all together, that constitutes the concept of the dish. Yeah. You know, so you cannot ever say there's only one way mm. to make nasi goreng, there's only one way to make ayam boklok, there's only one way to make sweet and sour. Pork. Yeah. You know, to claim that there is only one way, and that's the and that that's the authentic way, and every deviation is heresy and must be punished. <laughs> that is just a totalitarian viewpoint that I I am not down with. Yeah. Okay, that, that 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 is not how food works. Food is about different perspectives coming together, and having multiple versions of a thing, all of which may be equally good, and. Everyone is enriched by mm. that knowledge that there are that that your family may put curry leaves, mine may not. Your family may add a bit of sugar at this point, mine may not. Vive la différence again. <laughs> yeah, which is why I feel that authenticity is so subjective. Food is so emotional for so many people, and like when you see that you can't do this or you can't do that because my family doesn't yeah. do it, then. You know, you're you're basically invalidating someone else's experience. I, I think it's been a really rich conversation and I know that, you know, some parts might be a bit honest and candid in a way and like we had quite a feisty conversation there. <laughs> but you know, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation even though the way that we see things might be a little bit different. Yes, and you know, I, I value your perspective as as much as I hope you value mine. You have been very supportive and inspiring to, I'm sure, a lot of people within Singapore's local food scene. So thank you for doing what you do. And um, yeah, thank you again. I, I mean, thank, thank you for saying that. You know, I, I, I have found my own little corner of the, the food scene and I do what I do. And if other people are blessed by it, then that's really all I could ask for. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Christopher Tan, writer, author of The Way of Gui, and culinary instructor. Singaporean cuisine can be intimidating, and if, like me, you never grew up being in the kitchen and learning from your mother or grandmother, to learn on your own and to sift through all of the information online can feel incredibly overwhelming. Through well-tested recipes, video tutorials to hold your hand every step of the way, and also our community support, Singapore Noodles seeks to take the mystery out of this cuisine so that you can create the dishes that you love, wherever in the world you may be. Visit our website at sgpnoodles.com to sign up for a membership. Otherwise, you can sign up for our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com for more kitchen tips and stories. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.